You're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and tax industry lead for U.S. international corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. Okay, so Congress has been pretty active in the ESG space lately with some carrots and some sticks for the E and the S factors in the equation. Big issues to prompt companies to revisit their supply chains. Well, joining me today to discuss are my co-host, Courtney Wallace, an international tax principal from our Detroit office, and Jessica Livy, a trading customs principal from our LA office. And rejoining us is George Salteratos, a trading customs principal from our Atlanta office. Yes, Jessica and George, thanks so much for joining us. I just feel like ESG, we're hearing about it all over the place in many different areas. I don't think that we had thought of initially when we started hearing about ESG. So really looking forward to the discussion. Great. So Jessica, maybe we can start with a quick update on forced labor. I say quick, but it's a huge one, isn't it? You're right, Kim. Under the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, or it's fondly referred to as the UFLPA, Congress put into law a presumption that products that are manufactured or mined, including components that go into finished goods, are presumed to be made with forced labor if they're coming from the Xinjiang Autonomous Region in China. Because of that, importers have a responsibility to put in place a compliance program, including significant due diligence, to ensure that their supply chain is free of products or components that are coming from the Xinjiang region. So I picture like a big cargo ship rolling up to port and a customs officer strolling up and saying, where did this come from? Looking at the bill of lading or whatnot and saying, oh, wrong place in the world. So is it possible at that point to say my suppliers have repped and warranted that there's no forced labor in the chain? That's a great question. Under the law, the presumption is on the importer and the due diligence is on the importer to understand their supply chain. As a part of making entry into the United States, they are claiming that their supply chain is free of products that are produced with forced labor in Xinjiang or other areas of the world. And U.S. Customs has indicated that it's not sufficient to run a paper compliance program in the sense of having an affidavit that indicates that the supplier is not sourcing product from Xinjiang. So it seems like now, really, we've had this threat hanging over. Are they going to stop our shipments? How are we going to deal with these issues? And it looks like it's no longer really an if, it's a when, right? U.S. Customs has been given significant budget, including technology resources, to focus on enforcement of the UFLPA. And because of that, they've been able to stop about a billion dollars in shipments. We have seen almost 3,200 shipments stopped or detained. And of those shipments, about 420 have been denied and another 1,100 released. Companies need to start with screening against the Forced Labor Enforcement Task Force list, which is a restricted entity list that was published by Department of Homeland Security. And it contains a list of a number of entities that are producing product in the Xinjiang region. They can easily screen it against their suppliers, whether through their U.S. import data or through data that they collect out of their ERP. 
should their product actually get detained, they will be required to produce documentation such as production records and commercial invoices, potentially financial records, anything that demonstrates that the product was not sourced or manufactured through the use of forced labor. And as a part of that, it's required to also get into policy documents. Do you have guidance on how you're recruiting workers? Do you have policies around use of workers' documents such as passports and the like? It sounds like documents that might live in HR, that might live in logistics, that might live in all different pieces of the organization. It typically is a cross-functional stakeholder group that comes to the table to discuss the requirements and really execute on the requirements under the UFLPA. And that may include individuals like the chief sustainability officer or chief compliance officer, as well as legal and trade and customs. We are typically looking for documents that support managing a responsible supply chain. And as I mentioned, that may include documents or policies around recruitment of workers looking at, are they paying a contract broker to recruit workers? And if so, what is what is the level of governance and oversight over those contract brokers? We are also looking at availability of labor in various areas. So one of the things that we have seen more recently come out from China is beyond just the production of goods, we're seeing that weaker labor is being shared across the broader China area we're seeing Uyghur labor being shifted. So looking at how are they sourcing labor? Where are they getting it from? How are their employees treated through various mechanisms? Things of that nature is beyond the commercial shipment documentation. You know, maybe some of this right. is proprietary, but but if you can show us some video footage, like do you have people, you know, do you have people living there? What conditions are they living yeah. in? You know, what do you feed them? We also have conducted some supply chain reviews overseas where we're actually in the facilities. This isn't something you can necessarily do in China. There's various difficulties in doing so, but we've done it outside of China where we have worked with the factories on the ground to look at their documentation and be able to determine what type of commodities or raw materials are being sourced and where are they being sourced from to be able to support Things like supply chain mapping, which is a requirement under the UFLPA. From there, you know, you start to put the picture together. And what we have found is that while most importers and factories are trying to do the right thing, this is all new to them. This hasn't been something where they have been asked about documentation around this, around supply chain due diligence. It just seems overwhelming. I'm not going to lie. I guess the total overhaul that just needs to happen from a supply chain perspective. I think there's been such a focus in that group for so long on cost saving, efficiency, and otherwise. And now I think to go back and relook at those processes and make sure that you've added the governance, it seems like at every point along the way, all the way back. And U.S. Customs and Department of Labor really want you to focus on remediation. They don't want you necessarily just to shift away from a supplier unless it's very egregious. They'd rather that you work with that supplier to address the issue that was identified to make them better. Okay, so UFLPA at the moment only talks about this particular region in China, but there are other countries like Malaysia, where there's at least some suspicion of forced labor. Is there any guarantee that the legislation won't be broadened later on to include those other regions? 
There's definitely no guarantee, Kim, and what we have seen in practice is that, in fact, there's some recently published data that indicates that production in Xinjiang has decreased by up to 90% for export to the U.S. We believe that is a direct relationship to the advent of the UFLPA. However, in that same commentary, we also understood that most of that production shifted to Southeast Asia. And that has actually led U.S. Customs to start detaining and inquiring about shipments out of Vietnam and Malaysia. And we've seen that with our clients. We've seen that some of the same products that were targeted out of China are now being targeted from those other countries because of connections or suspicion of connections to the Xinjiang region. Those don't come with the same presumption, right? Or is it that customs is saying, hey, you know what, in for a penny, in for a pound, and if I think that there's forced labor, I can detain it no matter what. It's a great call out, Kim. The law actually indicates that it's any finished good or component, and it's that component aspect that is the link to a lot of the production that's occurring outside of China. So we are seeing that, as you may remember, approximately 20% of the world's cotton comes from China and 80% of that comes from the Xinjiang region. That cotton is being provided to other countries, including Vietnam, Malaysia, and they go into final products. It's that connection with that cotton or the component that is the link to the UFLPA, which allows U.S. Customs to use that rebuttable presumption in detaining those goods. If you move away from UFLPA and we start talking about withhold release orders, Mm -hmm. that is where U.S. Customs has a broader opportunity to look globally. And at this point, we have approximately 53 withhold release orders. They operate very similarly to enforcement under the UFLPA, but it gives broader guidance. It's not tied to a region of the world. It's global and it's looking for any type of forced labor, human trafficking, child labor situations. So, Jessica, you shared a number of, I think, EU developments coming out. One of the underlying objectives with the UFLPA is collectively raising the bar on human rights standards globally. We have the German Supply Chain Due Diligence Act that went into effect in January of this year that have similar standards. There's been some recent discussions with Japan to focus on how they're sharing information and what they're sharing and how they collectively can work with suppliers on these issues. We would expect that based on the legislation we're seeing, Courtney, coming out of the EU, coming out of Canada, we expect that there is likely conversations that are occurring within U.S. Customs and their colleagues in those regions to support those legislative activities because the legislation is very similar to what we have here in the UFLPA. It's just so much to do, right? (laughs) An entire piece of the organization that hasn't to think about all these things before. It's a ton. I know. (laughs) Because turning the boat around and taking the goods somewhere else isn't, that doesn't work, right? Not that easy, even if it did work. Well, you know, not that easy. By the time you realize that you probably racked up storage charges at the port, in some cases, well, we hear companies saying, well, I have about 24 days before the value of this merchandise is worthless, right? Because I'll pay more in storage. And at that point, they have to make a decision whether or not to destroy it or try to find a place to export it or perhaps try to export it back to the supplier and deal with a pretty lengthy legal battle with respect to who's going to pay for the goods and who's going to pay for shipping. Sorry, did you say destroy it? 
Absolutely. Yeah, Kim. I think, you know, when it comes to the options involved here, one of them and, you know, one of them that a lot of companies have actually taken are to destroy the merchandise. Court, from a tax perspective, let's see, let's think about this. It's not a casualty loss. You've done it to yourself. It's not an expropriation. It's got to be some kind of abandonment loss. So maybe if it's not insured against you destroying it yourself, or if Hopefully there's you nothing. get one six fifty. Yeah. Yeah. And your insurance contract that says we're not gonna cover these types of losses either. <laughs> and that's something we gotta look out for. <laughs> Try not just to be a loss. <laughs> yeah. So I think hopefully you can squeeze into 165 and get an ordinary loss for that. But I mean, <laughs> somebody who knows more about losses than than I do would have to look into that. But maybe you can recover a little bit, but that's certainly not a position you want to be in, yeah, Court. Right. And I don't know how much did it cost even to destroy it incurring work costs on disposal and otherwise and getting it out of there. And I guess you can't donate it, right, George, because you can't even bring it into the country. Well, that's right. Arguably, the countries that you'd be shipping it to would also not want merchandise that's made with slave labor and or forced or child labor. There are also duty implications. If they are exported, you find some way to ship them out of the country or the supplier accepts the redelivery and the company has already paid the duty on it, then one of the strategies is to at least go back and recover the duty that was paid upon the declaration to customs. If you're holding it in a warehouse, do you basically do it in a free trade zone or something so it doesn't even come into the U.S. at first? I could say that at this point, you're pretty much a trade and customs honorary (laughs) member. So yes, now there are instances that we know of where customs has approved the goods moving from the port directly to the company's foreign trade zone so they could remain in quote unquote bonded status so that they don't have duties incurred on them until customs is able to assess the status of the merchandise and review the products for purposes of these forced labor allegations. We think that it is something that companies should be using if they have a foreign trade zone to ask U.S. customs to allow them to do that. And we have heard that they, in certain ports, have approved the merchandise moving from the port. That's a good way to avoid extra storage charges, potentially duty, and also have some time to set eyes on the merchandise and customs come to you as opposed to being left in the dark. So, George, I know we've been talking with clients quite a bit about maybe the IRA credits and otherwise. So how are companies thinking about the E part in the ESG and how are suppliers maybe looking at incentives or other pieces of the legislation? It's interesting because it really comes back to traceability. And I think the two parts to traceability in the global supply chain, you need to know your supplier and their supplier and their supplier and there's all the way back to potentially cotton plantations or raw materials critical minerals that traceability visibility and transparency requires some sort of organized way to collect the data and put it in one place you flip that coin and now you lead to the same thing but for products so know your product and everything in them really The regulations that are being passed, not only under the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, but also in the EU and globally, are focusing on what's in the products. Or maybe what are they wrapped in, if you think about the EU Plastic Packaging Act. So 
the idea behind traceability, visibility, transparency, ESG, supply chain, it really brings us to a point where we say supply chain regulatory management is something that we think folks are going to be spending a lot of time on in the years to come. So, George, I know we've worked together on a lot of folks in the automotive sector. This is really hitting them in a lot of different ways, isn't it? With USMCA, we've got this, we've got content requirements all over now, it feels like. Yeah, absolutely, Courtney. When you think about auto and IRA, the automotive industry has a lot to gain. There's a lot that is going on in the U.S. with the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and being able to benefit from credits and incentives, which I believe is one of the carrots. And if you look elsewhere, I see a lot more of the sticks. And if you were to categorize the carrots and the sticks, I think in the EU, you would look at things like the EU Green Deal, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanisms, the Plastic Packaging Act, new battery legislation that will impact automotive companies with respect to having a passport for each battery. And just now, the EU is reacting in a way where they are passing the EU net zero policy to counter the IRA. And the IRA is really a carrot. And so I think when it comes to the U.S., the reason why we've had more than $50 billion in investment in EV battery production and counting is because companies realize there's value in setting up shop in the U.S. So I think one of the things which has been an interesting development, too, as we think about carrots and sticks, <laughs> we've got maybe the minerals piece. I think that that's something that folks are struggling with as they work especially, I think, in that battery space. Yeah, Conflict Minerals under Dodd-Frank set up certain companies, including automotive, to have a foundation to build on for some of the requirements that are coming out in the global regulatory space on supply chains, collecting minerals that are included on the list of the conflict minerals and from the places that they're being mined. I think it's very similar in the IRA, although very much more complicated. And I'll give you an example to that to actually benefit from some of the consumer credits under the Inflation Reduction Act. You need to meet some requirements on components and critical minerals, among many others, right, including MSRP of the vehicle. And one of them is that you need to have 50% of the component content from North America in order to get the 3750 credit. And then 40% of the critical minerals need to be from the U.S. or a free trade agreement country in order to meet the $3,750 credit. So once you start unpacking these rules, it's almost like tax policy met geopolitics met ESG met trade. And now you have something where you start pulling in a cross-functional team to manage it. You can't just wave your wand and say, oh, we get consumer credits because that, that goes down to the VIN, doesn't it? I imagine there's a car lot with a bunch of cars and stickers. This qualifies for, for credit. This qualifies for credit. And then there are other car lots with other cars that don't have that sticker. And that's going to make a significant consumer impact. So there will be customer demand to force this to happen to the extent that they can shift their supply chains, right? Absolutely agree with you. Can you imagine picking between your favorite color 
or if the battery has critical minerals from a jurisdiction that allows it to get the credit? So, Court, I think there may be a difference here between the will and the way to shift the critical minerals piece of the supply chains. Like a huge chunk of the lithium actually comes from Chinese mines. And I think an even bigger chunk of the refining capacity also sits in China. And then in comparison, only a sliver of that sits in the United States and Canada. Yes, there's a lot of it in Australia and South America also, but I don't think we have free trade agreements with all of those jurisdictions. Yeah, I think the Treasury has asked for comments on how that limited FTA jurisdiction list could be expanded in upcoming regs. There are only something like 20 countries on it, something like that. I don't know how else we're going to replace Chinese lithium without doing that. And lithium is not the only critical mineral on the list. Right. And after a few years, reliance on Chinese sourcing at any level completely cuts off the critical mineral portion of that credit. And I think over time, by the late 2020s, 100% of car production has to happen in North America in order to qualify for the production portion of that credit. So I imagine that this tracking, you just can't do this with a gigantic Excel spreadsheet, right? Excel's great, but you just can't. I think that's where most folks are still waiting to hear a little bit more about the implementation guidance from the IRS. We believe that all of the convergence here between tracking suppliers and tracking products with these forthcoming implementation guidelines makes it a very good time to think about how because it's an ecosystem it's dealers consumers oems suppliers their suppliers all the way back to the mine when it comes to automotive It's the same when you think about forced labor all the way back to the cotton field. So having technology, having data, more importantly, and having suppliers that are on board to provide the data is something that you can't start soon enough. Going back to USMCA in particular, the OEMs had that specific bogey on the wages that were being paid to factory workers. How is that going? Because I think that's a precedent. Right. The average labor rate for the USMCA needs Mm -hmm. to be um, $16 per hour. And in order to be used towards the regional value content of a product. Kim, quite frankly, I don't know how that's going. (laughs) Okay. And I was going to make it up. I could tell you, I could sense it. He's like, should I say? He's like, no, I don't know. I I was going to say that early days, people were like, it's totally not going to make it. It's from Mexico. We totally don't have $16. Or, oh, we're considering moving some of that to the US to make it $16 so that we could meet it. Right. So, But I don't know if people are hanging a lot of their supply chain transformation or movement on the labor amount. I don't know if I would over-enunciate it by saying it does. Okay, that's fair. Because this prevailing wage thing, it does appear several places in the IRA. And then, of course, it is a component of forced labor. And at some point, kind of back to Courtney's point, you're going to have to hold hands with HR and payroll and figure out how much you are paying. I think that's gonna be more and more a normal thing to be absolutely sure that everyone in the organization and your supply chain, even if you don't control those entities, are being paid a fair wage. Kim, Courtney, I agree. And I think the intersection of trade, labor, tax, 
and the green economy has never been stronger. So it'd be great to continue the dialogue. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time.